so yeah, so this is a, uh, it's a beautiful passage, but it has some difficulty, like much of the Gospel of John, if we read it closely and honestly. So it makes it hard to unpack. But have no fear, it just so happens that I wrote a little book on the Gospel of John about 10 years ago. However, it doesn't cover every passage in John. It's just an overview of the gospel. And I could have sworn that I included a section on chapter 10 on this passage. I remember working on it, but now I can't find it anywhere in the book. I don't know if that ever happens to you. You write a book and you remember putting something in it. Now you can't find it anywhere. So anyway, that was no help. So I had to find another way into the passage. So I'm going to share my screen here. All right, there we go. All right, so this is does have a lot of weird imagery when we read it closely, but one of the images that is not so weird in this passage is the central image of the shepherd. So this is how we often imagine him, a shepherd in ancient Israel, unaccountably looking like he's got Northern European ancestry with light skin, probably blue eyes, nice long light brown hair, blondish hair, looking like it was styled in a modern salon. And I want to find out what hair products he was using because when my hair was that long, I could never get it to look like that. So yeah, Jesus has got it going on. He's the white dude hanging out with sheep in the ancient Middle East. Now, in the Older Testament, both Testaments are pretty old by now, but in the Older Testament, God is often the shepherd. But it's not just God and Jesus. You see, in the ancient Mediterranean world, political leaders were often called shepherds. Dio Chrysostom, a first century Greek orator, writer, and philosopher, and, and historian of the Roman Empire, reminded Emperor Trajan that the emperor should be a shepherd of the peoples who is to protect the flocks, not to slaughter, butcher, and skin them. Apparently, Trajan needed to be reminded of that. Suetonius, a Roman historian who wrote during the late first and early second centuries, reports that Tiberius, the Caesar on the throne when Jesus was an adult, Tiberius rejected a provincial governor's request for increased taxes by saying, it is the part of a good shepherd to shear his flock, not to skin it. Notice that this shepherd language is not all warm and cuddly, but rather about brutal power relations between rulers and the people. And the Hebrew scriptures, that Older Testament, also uses the term shepherd, not just for God, but for human rulers. Jeremiah 43.12 refers to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon as a shepherd who will destroy Egypt. Isaiah 44, 28 refers to the Persian emperor Cyrus as a shepherd. And Numbers 27, 17 calls Joshua, the military leader, uh, a shepherd. But the text that stands, that is often cited as standing behind the gospel text today, is Ezekiel 34. Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. 
You have not sought the lost, but with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Now, the nature of Jesus' polemic, when we look at this text, comes into sharper focus. He calls them thieves and bandits. I think our translation said outlaws. Thieves and bandits or thieves and outlaws who come to steal, kill, and destroy. He calls them hired hands. During the time of Jesus, Israel's leaders were the Sanhedrin, led by the chief priest who was appointed by Rome. Perhaps that's what Jesus means by hired hand. And the ancient sources describe the high priests as a greedy and corrupt bunch who would steal and use violence to get what they wanted. The great Jewish historian Josephus reports that the high priest even stole from the lower priests. Josephus writes, the high priest Annas was respected and feared, but in a bad way, for he loved to hoard money. He offered bribes. He also had wicked servants who took the tithes belonging to the priests, that's the lower priests, by force and beat anyone who would not give these tithes to them. So the other high priests that followed him, as well as his servants, acted likewise without anyone being able to stop them, so that some of the priests the lower priests, those who were old and who were supported by those tithes died for lack of food. But that's just uh, an example because it wasn't just the high priests that Jesus likely has in mind. The entire ruling class of the empire laid a heavy burden on the peasantry through taxes, land rents, and consequent debt. Such oppression fits Ezekiel's description of the shepherds very well. They feed themselves. They steal. They abandon the sheep. So that's what's behind the shepherd imagery. There's a lot of other imagery in the passage in John to unpack, if only we had the time. Uh, there is Exodus imagery and Joshua imagery. Some of what may seem strange to us uh, stems from the literary technique of the, of the author of riffing off of more ancient stories that we're not maybe as familiar with, or at least the verbiage used in them. There is symbolism in this passage that I have not been able to unpack, such as how Jesus or the good shepherd enters by the gate, but then is the gate. This is the best image I could find for that. Uh, but given the lack of time and my own limited ability to comprehend the semiotics of this passage, despite having written a book on the Gospel of John, I want to talk about what we are to do with what we can understand. So I'm going to stop share for a minute here. So we are called to follow Christ, right? To be little Christ. That's what Christian means, little Christ. So then we need to become shepherds. So how do we become shepherds in a society where often the official shepherds are very much like the hired hands that Jesus describes. Well, that's actually what community organizing seeks to do. Community organizing is a practical framework by which we activate each other as shepherds, leaders in the community who have a voice. It's a lot like the priesthood of the believer, of the individual. And that is the work of the Faith Action and Solidarity Team, formerly known as the Organizing Committee. 
That's what the Faith Action and Solidarity team seeks to do. So what do shepherds actually do? Well, they organize sheep, right? In organizing theory, we are all potentially shepherds. We're also sheep, of course, because shepherds need sheep. So we are all shepherds and sheep, sort of like how Jesus comes through the gate, but is also the gate. So maybe that's, I don't know. So normally in our society, and perhaps many societies, the typical political stance tends to be passive, to leave all the governing and decisions about our communities to the appointed shepherds, the professional politicians, the hired hands. Most people are unaware of how much power they have and the opportunities that we have to influence the course of our society. A friend of mine a couple of years ago experienced for the first time testifying at a Pasadena City Council meeting. And after that experience, he was telling a group of us about it. And he started out by saying, hey, did you know you can go to city council meetings and they let you speak at the mic for three minutes and you can do that at every meeting? He was amazed. I was amazed. I was amazed that we had known each other for more than a decade and he didn't know that I'd do that all the time. And even worse, I had never bothered to tell him that he could do that. Now, so I don't make that mistake again, I wanna take this opportunity to tell all of you, my friends, hey, did you know you can go down to city council meetings and speak for three minutes at the mic? Well, right now during the pandemic, you have to do it through Zoom, but they let you speak for three minutes on anything on the agenda. And even on matters not on the agenda, they allot 20 minutes for that at the beginning of every meeting and then more at the end if necessary. It's really an amazing experience that too few people take advantage of. And you might find that you like it. You're on TV, you have a captive audience to say whatever you want. So now you know. Of course, we can do that as individuals, but alone, we're not gonna get much changed. We're just gonna be battling. However, together, organized, we can move mountains. So I'm gonna share my screen again. Go back to the PowerPoint. Okay, so do you remember this? Now, this is from our Moral Monday campaign where we vigiled on the street, we prayed at the Robinson Brothers Memorial, and we testified at the city council. And we won. We won 112 units of senior affordable housing, 10% of it permanent supportive housing for people experiencing homelessness. Kids were involved. Other churches were involved. Those pictures I showed show the night that PMC was sponsoring the Moral Monday, but on other nights, other congregations sponsored it. People from many churches wrote emails, testified in front of the city council. It was organized, and so we won. So now we're doing a church land campaign uh, to rezone church land for affordable housing. Churches across the city and across the state want to offer their land for affordable housing, but the zoning makes it either impossible or very expensive. So rezoning could save hundreds of thousands of dollars and several years on each project. So rezoning means that we could build more housing and we could build it faster. 
the way it works is that a church partners usually with an affordable with a nonprofit affordable housing developer the church is able to lease their land at a much lower price than the developer can get almost anywhere else in return the church gets income from the ground lease or use of part of the development or some mix of the two you can arrange it in different ways so it's a win-win for everyone we just need to get the zoning changed so we have a local pasadena campaign as well as a statewide campaign again there we are joining with other churches each congregation has its role each congregation is positioned to do its part and by the way this this picture here it's not photoshopped that's actually real that's a church in Clarendon, Virginia, that actually built housing right on top of their church, built affordable housing. So it's it's like the best picture of how you can do this because they didn't even have extra land. They just had space above them. So that's not for Photoshop. That's the real thing. So this is New Life Holiness Church on North Fair Oaks here in Pasadena. They are a small church of less than 50 people. They have been consulting with the team of experts for making housing and community happen, the, the organization that I'm with. They've been consulting with, the, with our team for over a year. Our team did a feasibility study with them, helped them write an RFP, a request for proposal, helped them interview developers to find the one that's right for them. So now they are entering an agreement with a nonprofit developer to build 52 units of affordable housing on their property. I sat in on the interview with the developer that they chose, and while I don't know the final amount of what the ground lease will be, the developer threw out a figure of $4,000 per month ground lease. That's a big savings for this nonprofit developer, but that's a lot of money for this small church. So these are this is like a good match. When that figure was suggested, $4,000 per month, Pastor Othella Medlock, did not talk about how they could use that money to shore up the finances of the church, although I'm sure they could use it. This church has been losing members because of the high cost of housing, so I'm sure their finances have taken a hit. But she did not talk about that. She didn't talk, talk about how it would pay her own salary, which I'm sure is not substantial at all. What she talked about instead, she talked about using that $4,000 per month to help families who are burdened by high housing costs pay their rent and mortgage so they don't get gentrified out of that community. This is an African-American church in a historically African-American community that has been hit hard by gentrification and has been losing uh, residents and the church has been losing members. And they're gonna build 52 units of affordable housing and then use the ground lease money to help other families uh, stay in their homes, but they need the zoning changed. This is Pasadena Foursquare Church. They already have nine cottages that they offer as affordable housing. Someone gave them to the church in a dilapidated state, and they partnered with Habitat for Humanity and rehabbed them and have been able to house people that were experiencing homelessness or were housing insecure. Additionally, they have eagerly jumped into the campaign to rezone church land for affordable housing across the city. I have done two workshops with them on organizing and advocacy, plus we made a video that was used in their Sunday morning service. 
and nine people from their church joined a call with their council representative, uh, along with, I think, at least one other person from our church, for to, to advocate for the rezoning of church land throughout the city for affordable housing. So we are not alone. I think sometimes we feel that we are alone among churches, but we have 20 to 30 churches in this network in Pasadena. Just think what will happen if we come together in even greater numbers. Now, PMCers have already joined this campaign by meeting with District 4 Council Member Masuda, as well as I think the council member from that other district that I just mentioned, by writing letters and leaving comments at multiple events, including a city council meeting, a planning commission meeting, and a public workshop by the city planning department. PMCers have left messages and made comments at all of these. And at one of them, a bunch, several PMCers were quoted in the press. So we've done quite a bit. And then last night, it's about 15 or 16 of us attended a vigil, uh, interfaith prayer vigil as part of this campaign. And that was really helpful to have that many people from our church representing there. And uh, Marianne Reardon read one of the scriptures at the event. We had pastors reading scriptures for housing justice. But we still can do more. We have other ways we can help. Uh, we could provide art. We could provide creative liturgy. Uh, we could feel theological exhortation. I think there are several people in our church that can do that sort of stuff. Uh, we could provide childcare for other congregations that maybe that, uh, so they could, you know, when they're doing things, when they're doing street actions or something, we could knit caps. Frank told a story last week of a woman in Minneapolis who knitted caps for people in the street protests. Well, what he didn't tell you was what she sewed into those caps. And Frank didn't tell you that because Frank is afraid to cuss in church. Well, I'm not going to cuss in church either. So I'm not going to tell you. But we could sew into the caps RCL, rezone church land. But to know what gifts we have out there, you've got to complete the survey. So uh, someone sent out the survey this week and last week was put in the chat and I, I've asked Matt to put it in the chat this morning. So I think he's doing that. Complete the survey. This is a survey of all our gifts and passions and orientations and all that kind of stuff. So we can figure out like how to organize together as a church and with other congregations. Together, organized, we can move mountains. We are the shepherds we've been waiting for. We're not sheeple, we're sheple. So sheple is um, shepherds and it's like sheeple, but shepherds and people squished together. Anyway, so I'm just gonna leave it there. I think I've made my point and I think it goes to uh, Rob now. Rob, take it away. <laughs> 